Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Well, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Monday afternoon. It's going to be a short week. 403-974-8255 is our telephone number, 974-TALK. It's going to be a chilly week, but it's also going to be a week of playoff hockey for what five of Canada's seven NHL teams, including Alberta's two teams. And it was awfully close last night for a while. The LA Kings took the lead in the third period of the Anaheim Ducks. Edmonton was up against Vancouver. Looks as though we were headed for a first-round battle of Alberta. But it wasn't to be. Could still happen. If uh, the two teams can win their first-round series, Edmonton's uh, in tough against San Jose Sharks, reigning Western Conference champions. Uh, Calgary Flames, of course. Yeah, they're in tough against uh, a team they haven't beaten in a very long time the Anaheim Ducks. I think everyone's excited for some playoff hockey, even got the Toronto Maple Leafs in the playoffs. Imagine that. That's going to be exciting. Uh, still to come in this hour, as mentioned, we got a couple of showbiz-type stories. Looking forward to this chat uh, about David Letterman, a new book about uh, David Letterman. But later in the hour, as mentioned, we'll talk about the, the issue of uh, Hollywood and gender. Now, Hollywood's full of a lot of liberals who like to lecture people on a whole bunch of things. But Hollywood's got its own problems with diversity. And we've heard a lot about that. Certainly when it comes to visible minorities being overlooked at Oscar time. But what about women? Take uh, directors. There aren't a lot of female directors. And when it comes to the Oscars, there's an award for best director. That's it. It's no male director, female director. And you go back and look over the years, you're not going to see a lot of women nominated, let alone winning. I think the last one was 2009. But few and far between. So why is that? Why are there so few female directors in Hollywood? There are obviously a lot of female actors and actresses. Are there enough that we could simply have one single best performance category? I mean, men and women are competing for the director award, for the sound editing award, for the screenplay award, etc. Why do we have best actor and actress? Anyway, the MTV Movie Awards... Would, um, certainly not on par with the Oscars, mind you, or even the Golden Globes, but younger people follow that. They're going to do away with that. They're just going to have best performance. So then are you basically on a quota system where you're going to have half your nominees male, half your nominees female? And if that's the case, well, why, why separate it then? But I think it's an intriguing question. Why does it exist? Why do they exist as separate categories in the first place? If you're simply looking at all the people who performed in all the movies that came out in any given year and you're just going to pick the best performances, why can't you say, look, that actress, she did a great job. That actor, he, that guy over there, he did a great job. Let them compete. So we'll get into that after 2.30. Got some other issues I want to get to as well, uh, including, as mentioned, uh, the news on the marijuana front. Legislation to legalize is coming on Thursday. But a couple of stories from the weekend. Now, we had Dana Larson on this program on Friday. Uh, he was uh, headed to an event Friday night in Calgary where he was going to be handing out marijuana seeds, the same thing that got him arrested a year ago. 
This time around, police showed up, kind of looked around, and then left. Isn't that interesting? Meanwhile, in Hannah, kind of northeast of Calgary, over the weekend, according to a press release they actually themselves sent out, they executed a warrant, search warrant on a home, and they seized, get ready, one marijuana plant. <laughs> one. Presumably the people getting seeds at the Dana Larson event are soon going to have one marijuana plant at their house or more. So should this be a priority for law enforcement, especially since we're going to legalize? I want to get into that. But as mentioned, let's talk about the changing face of late night television and someone who made an incredible mark, not just on late night TV, but TV in general and maybe comedy in general. David Letterman, love him or hate him, was hugely influential. And I think his departure sort of signals how the, the industry, how late night television is changing. But how do people remember David Letterman? How many people today are familiar with his work in the 80s? How many people today are familiar with the late night war of uh, the early 90s? Uh, our next guest is the comedy critic for the New York Times. Jason Zinneman is the author of a new book called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Jason, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Great to be here. Uh, you know, this was, look, this was a really fascinating book to me because I idolized David Letterman. I, you know, I remember being, you know, 13, 14 and sneaking out of bed so I could watch his show late at night. So I, I get a real interest in the topic. But let me ask the, the first question this way, because I feel like I, maybe a lot of people, it's like we miss Dave, but I don't know if we would still watch Dave if he was doing a show. That's interesting. Well, I mean, uh, I hate to turn it back to you, but why why do you say that? Why wouldn't you watch him? Because I think the Dave that I miss, when I think of Letterman, we're thinking of what he once was, right? And and maybe toward the end, you know, he and and you talk about it in the book, kind of his evolution over the years, that that he kind of ceased to be that. No, that's true. That's true. I think uh, if you're saying if he went back on the air right now, would we still watch it? Well, there's no, the, the evidence is there that his ratings plummeted in the last 10 years, 15 years. I mean, there's, so uh, people did stop watching. Um, and I think, I mean, he, he, um, he did some things in his later period extremely well. And I think, uh, you know, after 9-11, he had, yeah. and uh, he had a real galvanizing show. And I think as a storyteller, he really grew. But uh, it's definitely an argument of the book that uh, his most fertile artistic period, the period when he was doing the most exciting, innovative work, were the uh, NBC years in the 80s and 90s, when, when well, I suspect you and myself as well were, were sneaking out to, to stay up past your bedtime to watch the show. Well, in, in the title of the book, The Last Giant of Late Night, I mean, in a way, it's about how... You know, the industry has changed, the medium has changed, and it's probably true that there will never be somebody like him. As much as there are, you know, funny and innovative people doing comedy on late-night television, things have really changed, haven't they? Oh, they've radically changed. I mean, the, the form has changed in the sense that now everything's about cutting up clips into viral bits, mm-hmm. and people watch late-night shows in the morning, and they watch in the afternoon. So the, the, the sense of having to kind of go to the show, working, staying up late being a, this kind of event uh, is, is, is gone. Um, and at the same, there's also, you know, if you watch those early Letterman's, he's adversarial with show business and skeptical of stars in a way that nobody had seen before and does not, you don't see it today at all. Uh, there's, you know, there's this sort of chummy 
uh, atmosphere that all late night hosts had before Letterman. Um, and, you know, they would go about the, the business of promoting, you know, movies and this kind of thing. And then Letterman came along and kind of blew that all up and sort of said, you know, kind of spoke for people in the audience saying, these are just actors. What do they know? And they're selling this crap. And I mean, he wasn't saying this explicitly, but he was saying it through raised eyebrows and an ironic kind of voice. And I think for a lot of people in the audience, they, they thought, well, finally, someone is, someone is saying what I was I'm thinking. And uh, that, I think, is, is largely gone from, from late night. But it's interesting because you're right. I think that was a big part of his appeal, that he was a celebrity who wasn't a celebrity. And he was very self-deprecating. I think that, that came through. But I don't know that people realize the full depths, I guess, of maybe how unhappy he was. And it really comes through in the book. Well, that, that was something that, was, that, that surprised me a bit and, and was in, through the reporting of the book. And, um, you know, I came to feel that that was integral to his success um, because... You know, he was a guy who um, was often unhappy and, and uh, a perfectionist and tough on himself. And that uh, kind of neuroses, he transformed into comedy on his show. You know, especially in the, the late 80s, early 90s, a lot of the show became about his difficult personality and making that funny. And in that sense, I feel like, you know, Letterman is like uh, any great artist where he is expressing himself through his form, which is jokes and comedy and bits and all this. Um, but at, on a deeper level, he's letting us in and telling us who he is. And um, I don't know anyone that has done that better um, over, you know, those 30 years. And moreover, you know, what he was telling us about who he is, is that he isn't always, you know, a happy, sweet yeah, ingratiating personality. He was being real. Um, and I think there's one last point is that if you think of like late night talk shows, like say hour long dramas, um, and imagine if you had an hour long dramas, there was a rule that said the protagonist had to all be likable, <laughs> right? That, that would mean that would erase most of your favorite shows is my guess. Um, so many great shows, the Sopranos all these, are, are based on complex, protagonist yeah. and Letterman was nothing if not a complex protagonist and and I think today every 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 host tries very hard to be likable in a way often that Letterman is most radical uh, did not Right, all through his career, right? Whether he was on top of the ratings, down in the ratings, it, it, it never was quite enough. He was never satisfied. Do you get the sense now and, and having been able to, to sit down and talk with him that being away from it all not having to worry about those things. Do you think he's finally at peace? Does he seem content? Honestly, he really does. Uh, he seems, he does seem, he seemed more content when I interviewed him and he's been doing a lot more public uh, appearances and interviews lately. And he seems happy. I mean, it's incredibly stressful to put on a, an hour of television every day. And you know, the, the, uh, being a broadcaster is not easy. Um, and, to, to do it at a consistent high level is very hard. And I think, you know, he's earned his, 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 his rest. And I think he feels a certain weight is off his shoulders. I mean, he said, he told me that, you know, he sort of wondered, like, well, why was I so crazy? Why was I thinking that this talk show was such an important big deal? It's not that big a deal. 
<laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just television. Uh, and the irony of that is, of course, that was one of his go-to jokes in his early years. He'd say, you know, this is just television. Obviously, a big turning point for Letterman, and I, I think people still think of it when we talk about him and, and Leno and what happened with The Tonight Show. Uh, things went down as they did. Do you think, do you get the sense that had Letterman got The Tonight Show, that the 90s might have gone differently for him? Or was well, he, was he on the same question. trajectory regardless? It's a really, really interesting question. It's a really interesting question. Um, I suspect that things wouldn't be that different. Um, I think, first of all, I, I think it was inevitable that CBS was going to start a late-night franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that would have been Leno, which is a very strong possibility, um, and so in that case, it would just be a table of return. Leno is on CBS and Letterman is on NBC. And I think <clears throat> Letterman, once he went to 1130 on CBS, the show changed um, and I think there was a sense back then, it now seems very dated because people, like I said, they watch these shows all, all over the day, but there was a real sense that 1130, you had to put on a broader, more widely appealing show than at 1230 where you can take more risks. Um, so, you know, would he have done Johnny's show right away? I don't think so, but I think he would have split the difference. Um, and, uh, and I think inevitably his career arc would have been pretty similar. Okay, well, Jason, stand by for a second. We'll take a quick break and come back, continue this conversation. Uh, Jason Zinneman is on the line with us, comedy critic for the New York Times and author of the new book, Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. We're back with more right after this. Welcome back in conversation with Jason Zinman, comedy critic for the New York Times, talking about his uh, new book, Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. And I guess, you know, Jason, in your view, when you're asked the question, I mean, how do you define peak Letterman? When, when do you think that he was at his, his absolute best? Well, in the book, I sort of argue that there's three great periods, and I have, I have affection for all of them. The first one is between like 80 and 84, three sort of just periods of, of complete distinct aesthetic events. And one is 80 and 84. And that's when he sort of seems like an ordinary Midwestern guy surrounded by this experimental literate show. And then in the middle 80s, you have kind of the show at its most freewheeling visually with monkey cam and shows that like a 363 show where the camera spins 360 degrees and uh, doing a lot of stunts. And um, it, it gets kind of bigger and, and uh, <clears throat> more thematically ambitious. And then... The third period, which I think probably right now is my favorite period, um, although I go back and forth, um, which is, you know, from like uh, 80, 90, 88 through the beginning of CBS, which is a period where he is really talking directly to the camera, being most uh, telling long stories, being most, I think, uh, confessional. Um, turning his personality into comedy at the same time while still doing really sharp, you know, written comedy bits, still doing great remotes. Um, you know, he sort of stopped doing remotes later. So I think that there's a kind of sweet spot in between that second and third period. Uh, you know, so maybe like 
86, 87, 88, 89, 90. That's, that, that's real. But, you know, this is very subjective, and I have to confess that, like, that's probably the period when I was most, as a kid, yeah. most religiously obsessed with, with Letterman. And, you know, these things, the, 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 I, I'm a, a real believer in that the things you love as a kid, you love in a deeper way than you like anything else. Yeah, no, I, I think that's totally true, yeah. Uh, you know, and obviously he couldn't do it alone, right? And part of the success of the show was the writers and, and what they contributed and what they convinced him to do. And But, I mean, there's a darker side to all of that, too, Jason, in your book. And you, you spoke to a lot of them. It was not a fun place to work. I mean, I think that's true. I think that's true a lot of late-night shows. But I think, I mean, at, at some point it was. I wouldn't say it was not a fun place to work, but I think it was a high-stress place to work. And at various points... You know, it, it felt um, you felt like at a quite a distance from the host. Um, and um, I mean, I think what I learned a lot through reporting about how important the writers were to the aesthetic of the show. And in some ways, in the early years, the writers, these you know brilliant writers, including Mel Marco and uh, Max Frost and Tom Gamble and George Meyer, who went on to be key players in The Simpsons and Seinfeld, uh, they were pushing Letterman to do more adventurous conceptual work. And he was sort of pushing to, was a little more wary about doing that and wanted to do something closer to The Tonight Show. And it was that tension between Letterman's instincts and their um, pushing to do more satire and conceptual stuff that produced the great show that it was. And so to really, uh, my, my theory is to really properly tell the story of why that show is so great, you can't just focus on Letterman, nor can you just focus on the writers. You have to look at how that, out of their sort of struggle, out of this relationship, they produce what they produced. Right, and it's interesting, I mean, you know, how Letterman kind of paved the way for The Simpsons, and, you know, you can make a case for SNL or Seinfeld, as you mentioned, but I think uh, Late Night and The Simpsons, when you talk about great comedy writing or those kind of credentials to say, I was there. I was a writer on that show. That's a big deal, right? right? It's a huge deal. I think I had, you know, George Meyer is this legendary comedy writer who is um, as important as anyone in the history of the Simpsons and uh, tremendously respected. He was at Letterman uh, the first, you know, early on. And I think he said, I quote him in the book saying that, you know, the Simpsons that, that, Writing at Letterman and the, the work on Letterman gave the sense, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it had an ambition, especially in terms of its kind of like the meta humor it did, that opened the door for the writing staff of the Simpsons to be more ambitious. Um, and I think you see it. There's a kind of ironic um, sense of humor and style that Letterman mainstreamed in the 80s that opened the door to so much other kind of comedy and culture. And now it's just part of the meat and potatoes of pop culture. We don't even think twice about it. Well, I guess the difference is, I mean, you know, The Simpsons, you know, you can turn on a TV, it's it's on somewhere at some point every day in, in constant syndication. But it's not the right. case with, with Late Night, right? I mean, it's it's hard to go and find a lot of this stuff. Well, that's, you know, that's one of the main reasons I wrote the book, which is that, you know, it, 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 it sort of bothered me that SNL, as you say, is con- or the Simpsons and SNL and Seinfeld are a constant syndication. People, really, people, fans of those shows, really know the difference between Seinfeld season one and Seinfeld season ten. Yeah. Um, but like, even even big Letterman fans don't really know the difference between eighty four and eighty eight, and they're very different. So 
um, I had to work hard to find these shows, actually, to find them and see them in any kind of systematic way. And I had the help of a fantastic super fan, this guy named Don Giller, who got a piece about in the paper today, um, who is recorded every single episode of the 6,028 episodes and except for two and uh it's kind of become like an unofficial archivist for the show um and uh you know in, in seeing them again that was the first thing i did when i started the project in watching it show up to show up to show i really you know learned a ton well and yeah i think it's important that we're going to talk about letterman's legacy because i, I think people maybe tend to remember, as you mentioned, when he came on after 9-11 and, and the impact that had. I mean, the downside, obviously, his, his scandals. Uh, that made a lot of news. People are going to remember the late-night wars. But is his legacy going to be defined in part by the impact he had in, in the 80s? I mean, I think that's the foundation of his reputation, the foundation of his legacy. Even when you look at what happened after 9-11, part of the power of that, um, of that show is that Letterman was known for being kind of a tightly wound, repressed figure. Yeah. And he was being emotional. And to see someone emotional who usually, you're not used to seeing that emotional carries an extra bit of impact. Was well, a fascinating character. It's a fascinating book. It's called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Jason Zinnemann, great talking to you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Great talking to you. Thanks for inviting me. All right, there you go. Jason Zinneman, comedy critic for the New York Times. His book is called Letterman, The Last Giant of Late Night. Uh, quite a fascinating book, as I say, and, and a subject that I'm really interested in. Certainly, you know, when Letterman came on right after 9-11, I'll always remember that. It was hugely, hugely emotional. And that was one of his defining moments. But I think before that, I, I do think he kind of tailed off in, in the mid to late 90s. And even after that, that 9-11 moment, he just, he did seem to become detached from it all. And then you had, you know, the scandals with the, the affairs, and he became kind of weirdly political in a way that he wasn't before. So I think, you know, the, the edge and just how sharp he once was, I think a lot of that was gone. But and as I said at the outset to Jason, I mean, I, you know, I do kind of miss that, you know, Dave's not a part of the landscape. Even if in his later years, I, I didn't really find myself watching a show that much. But at once was, you know, was huge in my life. And I think for, for a lot of people, too. Okay, we're going to break here for the bottom of the hour. 403-974-8255 is our number. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.